Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And just a kind of a quick recap. Last week, I spoke at some length about the fact that synodality is a newly minted word and as such has no traditional Catholic definition. Synod, on the other hand, has been in use for centuries and is a synonym for council. The terms are still considered interchangeable, at least as recently as Vatican II, the documents of which repeatedly refer to the council as this sacred synod. So I suggested that the Synod of Bishops on Synodality could therefore be understood as the Council of Bishops on Conciliarity. And conciliarity does have a traditional definition. It refers to the schismatic concept of church government by councils of bishops, which the Eastern Orthodox embrace as the highest form of ecclesiastical rule, which of course excludes the primacy of the Pope in principle, as they do not recognize papal supremacy, which is why they're schismatics. Further, I conjecture that it might be alternately understood as the Council on Conciliarism, which is the heretical theory that recognizes the Pope, but considers a general council of the Church to be of higher authority. Now, the, the conciliarist idea was a response to the papal scandals of the 14th century and promoted the viewpoint that the Church in general was free from error, but that the Church of Rome could, and in fact had, fallen into heresy. Now, embracing this notion, the Council of Constance taught that a general council could depose the Pope. But that decision was not binding because, not surprisingly, it was never ratified by the Pope. And therefore, it's not a valid teaching. Still, the conciliarist heresy survived, especially as Gallicanism, uh, and was only formally formally condemned at Vatican I. Ironically, the latest incarnation of conciliarism under the name of synodality is not being used against the current pontiff, but rather seems to enjoy his approval. And the danger that some perceive is that the upcoming synod's alleged consultation of the whole people of God, quote-unquote, will be used to justify the false belief that the immutable, that is, unchangeable, doctrines of the Church can, in fact, change. Which seems to me uh, the only reasonable explanation for the synod's inclusion of topics like women's ordination, and blessing homosexual unions, and so on. So the question, as I framed it last week, is this. Is it possible that the Roman pontiff would use synodality as an excuse to declare that his hands are tied and that he has no choice but to change the doctrines of the Church? Not by his own authority, of course, but that of the consensus of the people of God. Only time will tell, of course, and I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, so we'll just have to wait and see. But there is another reason to examine the rebirth of conciliarism, namely Sedevacantism. Now, the Sedevacantists, as you probably know, posit the theory that Pope Francis has automatically lost the papacy through teaching heresy. But the question naturally arises, if that's the case, what's the church supposed to do about it? You see, ironically, some set of Acantists have embraced the conciliarist heresy that a general council could depose the Pope. But how that could be when such a council would require papal approval for validity is anyone's guess. And that brings me to the SCAD case of Father Altman. See, I mentioned some weeks back that the famously canceled priest had declared himself a set of Acantist. Uh, the 1 Peter 5 website posted a good and mercifully brief article 
uh, about it on September the 8th called Father Altman Goes Sede by T.S. Flanders. And they repost there a YouTube video from Father Altman called Bergoglio is Not the Pope. Now, Father Altman states correctly that no cleric, not even the Pope, can change dogmatic teachings of the Catholic Church. So far, so good. But to make his case, he quotes the Council of Trent regarding the necessity of being in a state of grace to receive Holy Communion, and points out that those who teach the contrary are anathema and excommunicated. He thus draws the conclusion that the Pope has excommunicated himself by asserting the contrary in Amoris Laetitia. And this is the classic set of a Cantist formula. A non-Catholic cannot be Pope. The automatically excommunicated Francis is not Catholic. Ergo, Francis cannot be Pope, QED. Now, to prove his case, Father Altman references St. Robert Bellarmine, citing the familiar quotation from De Romana Pontifice that suggests that a pope who is a manifest heretic is excommunicated late sense, that is, without any sentence being pronounced, and automatically falls from his office. Unfortunately, he ignores the fact that a cleric cannot be removed from his office except by the proper authority. Now, Mr. Flanders, I assume Mr. Flanders' article stops to point out that Father Altman's a good priest who bravely defended the faithful from the wolves and sheep's clothing in the hierarchy and got canceled for it in the process. For that reason alone, Catholics should be thankful to him for his efforts since, quote, he's doing more than the vast majority of priests out there, unquote. Unfortunately, Father Altman's case against the Pope is not open and shut the way he believes. In fact, it does not hold water. And I pointed this out before, but I'm going to keep repeating myself until the reason for it is gone. The fact is that St. Robert Bellarmine presents several theories about how to respond to an heretical Pope in De Romana Pontifice. Leite Senchek's communication is only one such theory, and not even the one that Bellarmine himself considered the most likely to be correct. Therefore, it is not, let me repeat, not the teaching of the church that a pope who's a manifest heretic automatically loses his office, but merely one among a number of competing theories. Now, according to Flanders, the plain fact is the question of an heretical pope has not been definitively resolved by the magisterium, and that's right. And how do I know? Because, as I just said, Leite Sente excommunication notwithstanding, canon law states that a cleric, of which the Pope is certainly one, cannot be removed from office except by the proper authority. Therefore, St. Robert Bellarmine teaches, quote, just as it is licit to resist the pontiff that aggresses the body, it is also licit to resist the one who aggresses the soul, or who disturbs civil order, or above all, who attempts to destroy the church. I say that it is licit to resist him by not doing what he orders and preventing his will from being executed. However, it is not licit to judge, punish, or depose him, since these are acts proper to a superior. And I point this out because it shows that the very same doctor of the church who proposed the hypothesis that a manifest, uh, manifestly heretical pope would automatically lose his office knows full well that it is forbidden to judge, punish, or depose the Pope, even if he's trying to destroy the Church. In other words, Bellarmine's teaching is not a justification for sedificantism, but rather is consistent with the teaching of Saints Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, who warned that a Pope can, in fact, be a heretic, but that it is unlawful to judge him. 
As Canon 1404 states clearly, the first C is judged by no one. And by the way, proving that somebody is in fact a heretic is a lot more difficult than you might think. Therefore, T.S. Flanders states in the article, the paradox between thou art Peter and get behind me Satan has not been resolved in the tradition. Because of this, uh, it says, it is not possible for bishops or priests, and certainly not the common faithful, to assert a particular view on this question as if it has been definitively resolved and adjudicated for a given case today. You know, it's like what uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski wrote regarding the Benevacantist controversy, right? This is kind of an offshoot of set of Acantism that holds the position that Benedict XVI didn't resign properly, and therefore Francis was never really Pope in the first place. <laughs> in either case, his point is valid. He says, I do not believe that the ordinary faithful are competent to adjudicate when God has stripped a Pope of the papal office owing to formal heresy. It is one thing to raise doubts and difficulties about Benedict XVI's abdication or Francis's apparent heresies, leaving the final determination to a future pope. It is quite another to decide on one's own or as part of a small remnant that one may cease to recognize Francis as pope. And, and that is, in fact, by the way, the only way a council could um, declare a pope uh, to have lost his office is after the fact and uh, have that ratified by another pope. All right, giving the last word to T.S. To Flanders, this is the ambiguity in which we must live as Catholics, holding fast to the deposit of faith, but realizing that our ability to judge the pope is severely limited. We can judge what we are obliged to pass down to our children, otherwise we could not pass it down. It's like I said the week before last, you don't need a special charism to know the doctrines of the church or you couldn't be Catholic. But, it says, we are not obliged to pass down to our children an answer to the question of an heretical pope, nor to judge the current pope, since it is beyond the jurisdiction and I would say the competence of the faithful to adjudicate these questions. The trap of Sedevacantism seems to be an excessive reliance on tribunals other than the ecclesiastical hierarchy. The long-term result is a system of private remnants which cannot be united in truth by an objective, visible hierarchy. And that, as we say around here, is no nonsense. Now, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking about the gospel for the upcoming Sunday in the traditional Latin math, the 18th after Pentecost. And we'll be looking at some rather amazing statements from Cardinal Dolan, who posted an article at our Sunday Visitor uh, regarding the preparation for the upcoming synod. He said that his question is, quote, how can we get people back to Sunday Mass when so many of our folks have stopped coming? Good question. And he tells us that apart from the predictable carping from the far left, claiming that the only way to increase Mass attendance is to drop all liturgical guidelines and go back to the do-your-own-thing hootenannies of the 70s, or the alt-right urging turning the altar around and getting the fiddlebacks out of mothballs. And so he said there emerged three main reasons why people no longer come to Sunday Mass. And as they say on the internet, you're not going to believe number three. That much more when we return. Right.
welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So in an article by Cardinal Dolan of New York, posted online at our Sunday Visitor on September 20th, he said, in our preparation for the Synod here in the Archdiocese of New York, close to 7,000 people accepted our invitation to attend listening sessions or respond online to issues of concern in the life of the church today. I was amazed at the high interest this generated. Now, okay, I, I don't want to be a jerk, but there are 2.5 million Catholics in the Archdiocese of New York, and the combined number of the faithful who attended listening sessions or responded online was close to 7,000. I mean, so not even 7,000? See, that's less than 1%. Heck, it's, that's barely one quarter of 1%. So whatever the results of that process, it can hardly be considered representative for the diocese, much less the church at large. In fact, if that's typical, they should have canceled the synod on synodality for lack of interest. But Cardinal Dolan is amazed at the high interest it generated. And what better indicator of the crisis in the church than that a cardinal of a diocese of two and a half million is excited that one quarter of 1% of his flock even give a hoot about the hierarchy's latest progressive scheme. He goes on to say that apart from the predictable carping from both fringes, the far left claiming that the only way to increase mass attendance was to drop all liturgical guidelines and go back to the do-your-own-thing hootenannies of the 1970s, or the alt-right, alt-right, <clears throat> or the alt-right urging turning the altar around and getting the fiddlebacks out of mothballs, the largest majority replied that the top reasons people were no longer coming to Sunday Mass were, are you ready for this? One, because they couldn't understand the priest. Two, their parish had been closed. And three, the Mass was too long. Well, that is amazing. Wait. People stopped going to Mass because their priest has English as a second language and they can't understand a word he says? Astounding. You mean the people were actually upset that you closed their churches? Shocking. Hang on. People find the new Mass boring? That's astonishing. See, apparently when he says people have stopped going to Mass, he's referring to the fact that attendance at the Novus Ordo Mise is down 40% from what it was before the COVID shutdowns and was only 25% of Catholics then. And yet, the traditional Mass just keeps growing. Now, somebody emailed me a while back, incredulous at my claim that the traditional Latin Mass at my church was, quote, beyond standing room only. He said he had visited my church and estimated that it seats around 300, and he could not believe that more than 300 people were coming to the traditional Latin Mass. Well, he was wrong. It seats 700 plus the people standing in the vestibule, plus all the people assisting outside in the courtyard on folding chairs and kneeling on the asphalt and listening to the Mass over loudspeakers. If Cardinal Dolan and, and the rest of the hierarchy is listening, I think I know where some of that 40% wound up. And of course, since the traditional Mass in Latin, or is in Latin, it, it really doesn't matter if the priest has an accent. That's why before Vatican II, a Catholic could go to Sunday Mass anywhere in the world, and the Mass would be the same as if he were at home. Now, in the last 16 years, my community has had priest celebrants who were Anglo, Black, Asian, uh, visiting priests who was Hispanic, if I recall correctly, who typically have two dozen altar boys serving Mass on Sunday, Master of Ceremonies, two boys at the altar, a designated thurifer, 
the boys who bring the wine and water for the priest at the offertory, the, the boys who bring the pitcher and basin at the lavabo, the torchbearers, a boy to carry the processional cross, and another to carry the aspergillum for the aspergisme. And those boys and young men, coming as they do from the families in the congregation, look like America, as the liberals used to say. Because the congregation is made up of Anglos and Asians and Hispanics and whites and blacks and young and old, etc., etc. Traditional Catholicism is the only one sector of the church that's growing instead of shrinking. In spite of whatever new persecutions, uh, persecutions the, the ruling hierarchs can dream up. At the same time, apparently, the majority of the Novus Ordo Catholics who have an opinion only wish they didn't have to stay so, uh, so long. I freely admit that my traditional confreres can be critical, but not about the Mass, much less about the length of the Mass. I should say the traditional Mass. And there's a simple reason why. We love to worship God in the way that our fathers and grandfathers and patron saints worshiped God. And if, as some maintain, this worship is no longer relevant, that it's outmoded or superseded, if the Novus Ordo Misae is the only true expression of the Church's Lex Arandi, then how does one escape the conclusion that the Novus Ordo Misae represents a new religion? Not the faith of our fathers, but a, a new religion cobbled together by ad hoc committees after Vatican II, like the new rite itself. Personally, I believe that Benedict XVI was right when he argued for an hermeneutic of continuity, that the only authentic way to interpret Vatican II is according to the two millennia of tradition that preceded it. And that over and against an hermeneutic of rupture that considers post-conciliar Catholicism a new religion. But it's abundantly clear that the latter is dominant among the elite in the high, nah, sorry, rented lips, amongst the elite in the hierarchy. And if you don't believe me, I suggest you take a good look at the way John Paul II's theological, uh, theological, no, I'm sorry, John Paul II's Pontifical Institute for Study on Studies on Marriage and the Family. It was remade in 2017 and renamed the Pontifical John Paul II Theological Institute for Marriage and Family Sciences. See, this change radically transformed the Institute in order to promote the work of the family synods of 2015 and 2016 and to implement Pope Francis' document, Amoris Laetitia. Now, to accomplish this, the current pontificate simply dismantled the institution that John Paul II created to serve precisely as a safeguard against dissent from Humana Vitae, which was Paul VI's document on uh, artificial birth control. Now, instead, the institution has been remade to conform to the ideals of the new regime. Honestly, so many changes have taken place that the institute is no longer recognizable. Staff who were faithful to the magisterium of Pope John Paul have been mostly removed, and many of the new faculty members that replaced them openly contradict his teaching on the sanctity of life, which is not really his teaching so much as simply the teaching of the church. And now, none of the professors at that institute were, who were unceremoniously dismissed were even notified in advance, nor, nor given any recourse to challenge their dismissals. And not surprisingly, this has led to a number of protests, uh, including by the Institute's own students and alumni and more than 200 international scholars who signed an open letter asking for their esteemed colleagues to be reinstated. But it was all for nothing. 
And we're supposed to believe that the same people responsible for this really care about what we think? Not that it should matter anyway. I mean, there's a popular error going around that conflates the census fidei with the will of the people. The census fidei, or census catholicus, refers to the reality that doctrines which are embraced always and everywhere by each and every Catholic, from the Pope on down to the humblest layperson, are infallible. So, for example, the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity, that there are three persons in one God, is infallibly true. And the fact that every Catholic, without exception, believes in the Trinity makes it an example of the census fidei. But this census does not make the doctrine infallible. Rather, it demonstrates its infallibility. The census fidei can never contradict, much less supersede, the deposit of faith. So what the, the, the census fidei, or the newly formulated consensus of the people of God, does not mean is that the church's teaching should change if a majority of Catholics reject some doctrine, as if doctrinal truth were a matter of opinion polls or majority vote. It was this error that incited Catholics around the world to reject humana vitae. The spurious argument that artificial birth control is okay now because the majority of Catholics practice it is not an example of the census fidei, but of mass apostasy. Look, the idea that we can be like God and decide for ourselves what is good and evil is literally the oldest trick in the book. It is one thing to theorize about the development of doctrine, or more properly, the development of our understanding of doctrine. But do not be taken in by those peddling the lie that changing Catholic doctrine equals listening to the Spirit. Because that's not listening to the Holy Spirit, but to the Spirit of the age. And that's no nonsense. And I am never going to get through this if I keep digressing. But I digress. The point is, it's getting harder to ignore the obvious fact that liberal uh, post-Vatican II Catholicism is not Catholicism at all. But for those who have the census fidei, it is just as clear that this new religion cannot last. Because progressive Catholics do not beget more progressive Catholics, they beget non-Catholics. Hence, the dwindling numbers. Which brings us back to Cardinal Dolan. Let's concentrate, he says, on the third reason that Catholics don't go to Mass. That is, because Mass is too long. He says, at first I was prone to dismiss this. But after reconsidering the dozens and dozens of such replies, <laughs> again, dozen replies out of millions of Catholics, which even he admits is far from a scientific survey. He says, I concluded that maybe these folks were onto something. It was very clear from the tenor of their responses that these were women and men who loved the Eucharist, who would rarely themselves miss Sunday Mass and were the first ones back after the pandemic restrictions were mercifully lifted. And, and I'm sorry to digress again, but I, and I was very grateful to go to Mass when COVID tide was finally over. But it was hardly an act of mercy to reinstate what they had no just cause to forbid in the first place. Anyway, these dozens of people are Catholics whom he says gladly welcomed the genuine liturgical renewal of the council. And <clears throat> okay, you know, for what it's worth and for what I wish was the last time, the Novus Ordo Mise was not mandated by the Second Vatican Council. 
You can read the, the documents until your eyes bleed. You will not find that calling for a new order of the mass. The, the, the Cardinal says that these Catholics were not asking for a quickie Sunday mass. They're Catholics who knew that a reverent, participative, joyful celebration of the Sunday Eucharist demands a chunk of quality time, but who were exhausted from the marathon masses, which they contend are driving the faithful away. Well, in all humility, I suspect that what's driving people away is the fact that the typical celebration of the Sunday Novus Ordo is anything but reverent or joyful. That's why it's exhausting. Cardinal Dolan gives some glib examples, including how the sung Gloria could, quote, uh, exhaust the angelic choir, unquote, to say nothing, he says, of an unending sung responsorial psalm and how the Lamb of God can reach the length of a baseball game. Now, how it is that the that the Agnus Day can become uh, a marathon is something that we will discuss on the other side of the break. Also, upcoming gospel for the traditional Mass next Sunday and more when we return with No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful. Welcome back. All right. And the um, the remarks of Cardinal Dolan that we uh, shared before the break, obviously he's exaggerating for effect and says as much. But how is it that the Lamb of God can, quote, reach the length of a baseball game when it's a simple threefold prayer? Agnus Dei, quitolis peccata mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, quitolis peccata mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, quitolis peccata mundi, dona nobis pacem. That's it. How does it become a marathon? And the answer is that it's not only sung, but repeated ad nauseum to provide background music for the preparing and passing out of saboria and chalices to the army of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, who should only ever be used in the case of genuine necessity in the first place. And of course, tropes are often added to try and make it less repetitive. So not Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but Jesus, bread of life, Jesus, son of God, Jesus, Lord of love. Which, by the way, if they're doing that at your parish, you should know that adding such tropes is expressly forbidden by Redemptionis uh, Sacramentum. In fact, it was reprobated. Not only forbidden, but condemned. The Lamb of God, uh, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, may be repeated as often as they feel the need to, but not the added tropes, because they're not a legitimate part of the prayer. And yet the practice continues anyway. Now, I do agree with Cardinal Dolan and Pope Francis that homilies don't need to be more than 10 or 12 minutes. All right? <clears throat> really, you can, you can say what you need to say in that amount of time, unless you're doing a, you know, a, a Bible study or a full-on exegesis, and I don't think that the homily is a place for that. But the good Cardinal concludes, I don't know what to think. Somewhere in between the racing 28-minute Sunday Masses of the past and the 90-minute Marathon Masses of today would seem to be the dream. And I'm sorry, I have to say that I'm particularly sick and tired of the stereotype of how traditional priests used to rush through the low Mass. I mean, if that was ever a problem, it certainly isn't today. Nor does the speed of a priest's Latin necessarily mean that his Mass wasn't reverent. 
anyway, the, the good cardinal believes this concern needs to be addressed because if not, he says, pretty soon Novus Ordo Mass will be very short because we priests may be the only ones there. Now, those are not my words, but the words of the Cardinal Archbishop of one of the country's largest dioceses. And that's no nonsense. All right, on to something more uplifting. The gospel for next Sunday's Mass in the traditional form, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, is taken from Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus, entering into a boat, passed over the water and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him one sick of the palsy lying in a bed. <clears throat> and Jesus, seeing their man sick of the palsy, be of good heart, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And behold, some of the scribes said within themselves, he blasphemeth. And Jesus, seeing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say, thy sins are forgiven thee? Or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the man sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. And he arose and went into his house. And the multitude, seeing it, feared and glorified God, who had given such power to men. I'd note that uh, one of the first things is in, in Matthew's version of this episode, um, which, you know, we just read. It's also uh, in the other Gospels, but it's this one where he says, the multitude feared and glorified God who had given such power to men. Obviously, they didn't suddenly understand that he was the third person of the Blessed Trinity, but that he had power from God to forgive sins. And that is precisely what the sacrament of penance accomplishes today, that the priest acting in the person of Christ absolves us from our sins, and we should glorify God that he has given such power to men. Now, the, the people who brought the sick man to Christ give us an example of how we should take care of the sick and help them according to our ability. Because Christ was so pleased with their faith and charity that he cured the paralyzed man and forgave him his sins. So we learn how we might help those who are diseased in their soul if we would lead them to Christ, by entrusting them to prayer, by good example, and by sincere concern for the state of their soul. Remember, to admonish the sinner is a spiritual work of mercy. And you notice that Christ didn't heal the man uh, who was sick of the palsy until he had forgiven him his sins. Father Goffin says this is because he wanted to teach us that sins are often the cause of sickness and other evils, which God would remove from us if we were truly repentant. So think of various addictions to drugs and pornography and etc., and all the bad things that attend them. And Jesus confirmed this doctrine when he said to the man who'd been sick for 38 years in uh, John chapter 5, sin no more lest some worse thing happen to thee. In the words of Father Goffin, would that this were considered by those who so often impetuously demand of God to be freed from their evils, but do not intend to free themselves from their sins, which are the cause of these evils, by a sincere repentance. So the scribes thought to themselves in their hearts, he blasphemeth, because they believed that our Lord, in remitting the sins of the sick man, usurped the rights of God, and thus did him injury, for it is 
blasphemy to think or say or do anything that's insulting to God or to his saints. What they failed to consider is that they, by their rash judgment, calumniated God because they blasphemed against Christ, who was healing the sick man and, and whom by numerous other works had clearly proven his divinity. Um, it gives one cause to think. If Christ so severely reprimanded the scribes who would not recognize him as God you know, for a blasphemous thought, you know, one blasphemous thought against him, what will he do to those Christians who, although they, they claim to be his followers, nevertheless utter blasphemies and curses and even profane the blessed sacrament by sacrilegious communions? When Jesus saw their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And that should be taken to heart by those who think that their thoughts are free from scrutiny, who never think to confess their evil and shameful thoughts, or even, you know, the idle words that come from their mouth. The Baltimore Catechism says that we can sin through thought, word, or deed. And we're responsible, not for every errant thought that enters our mind, but only for those sinful thoughts that we indulge. Father Goffin says, God, the most holy and most just, will nevertheless not leave a voluntary, unchaste, proud, angry, revengeful, or envious thought unpunished, any more than an idle word. Saying Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, that you have to be held to account for every idle word. And the best remedy against these evil thoughts is the love of God, who searches the heart and sees everything. And to remember how great is the love and mercy of Jesus towards poor sinners. Who not only forgave the, the sins of the man sick of the palsy, but consoled him and healed him and called him son. Now it's this love that encourages Catholics to beg of our Lord the grace to rise from our bed of sins by true repentance. And to amend our lives. And, and to follow the way of his commandments and enter into eternal happiness. And that's no nonsense. All right, this coming Sunday, this coming Sunday is not only the 18th after Pentecost, it is the 1st of October, the month specifically set aside by the church to honor Mary in her most holy rosary. Now, originally, this was to celebrate the victory of the Holy League over the invading Muslim fleet at the Battle of Lepanto. October 7 was uh, the Feast of Our Lady of Victory, and then it became the Feast of the Holy Rosary. And the rose, because the, the rosary remains very important today. Sister Lucy of Fatima said back in 1957, the most holy virgin in these last times in which we live has given a new efficacy to the recitation of the rosary to such an extent that there is no problem, no matter how difficult it is, whether temporal or above all spiritual, in the personal life of each one of us, of our families, of the families of the world, or of the religious communities, or even the life of peoples and nations that cannot be solved by the rosary. There is no problem, she said, no matter how difficult it is that we cannot resolve by the prayer of the Holy Rosary. With the Holy Rosary, we will save ourselves. We will sanctify ourselves. We will console our Lord and obtain the salvation of many souls. In 2002, Pope St. John Paul II asserted that after liturgical prayer, the Holy Mass and the Divine Office, that the rosary is the key to living out his pastoral plan for growing in holiness in the third millennium. 
you know, it's, it's part of the, uh, the Catholic survival kit. Now, every traditional Catholic knows that Mary gave the rosary to St. Dominic to combat the Albigensian heresy. But so many today treat this event as if it was just a pious legend, a kind of benign mythology to explain the origin of a devotion that really just evolved over time. And I, I must admit that even I, and on this very program, have considered the possibility that the rosary, or at least the use of beads for counting prayers to the number of 150 to correspond to the Psalms, may in some form predate Mary's visit to St. Dominic, but I do not doubt that she did appear to him and revealed the rosary as the means to convert those who were ensnared by that pernicious heresy of Albigensianism. See, unfortunately today, we live in a world that for more than 100 years, uh, biblical scholars, even Catholic ones, God help us, have doubted the very authorship of the Holy Gospels. See, if the origin and validity of the composition of our primary source of knowledge concerning Christ and his teachings can be called into question, then pious stories of miraculous intervention from heaven in latter times hardly stand a chance. So imagine my joy in discovering an article that serves as a powerful apologetic for the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Dominic in this beloved devotion. It's from a blog of the Dominican Fathers of Arville, or Avril, rather, in France. And we will talk about what they have to say about Dominic and the Rosary when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. talking about the history and origin of the Most Holy Rosary uh, from the Dominican Fathers of Avril. And we will uh, continue with this next week because there's quite a lot to share. But just going back to the beginning, I mean, in, in, in history, devotions rarely appear suddenly. And, you know, it sometimes takes centuries for divine providence to prepare souls to receive it. I mean, just look at the Old Testament. So the rosary stemmed from the habit of the early Christians thanking the Virgin Mary for all the benefits that she brought to mankind. Uh, and such are the lines inserted by Sedilius in the 5th century liturgy. Having both the joy of motherhood and the honor of virginity, no one else has been seen to possess a like privilege, neither before her nor after. And the popularity of using various salutations to Mary was... Um, a form of piety that developed, especially during the Middle Ages, following the great Marian devotion inspired by the hymns of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, like the Ave Marius, Ave Maristella and the Memorare, as well as the Salve Regina and others. Because for the medievals, the contemplation of the Virgin Mary and her privileges and the favors that she bestows on her children was considered a joy exceeding all others. And it was this joyful piety that gave us the name of the rosary. You know, in the Middle Ages, the rose was a symbol of joy. And to crown your head with a garden, garland of roses, which was called a chaplet, by the way, was a sign of joy. Hence, the Virgin Mary herself was sometimes referred to as the mystical rose or a garden of roses. And in medieval Latin, the word for a garden of roses is rosarium. 
The medievals believed that at each Marian salutation, the Blessed Virgin herself experienced an echo of the joy of the Annunciation. So it wasn't just about comforting themselves at the thought of Our Lady, but also to rejoice the heart of Mary. So the, the salutations were thought of as so many spiritual roses presented to the Blessed Virgin and fashioning for her a crown. And in return, Our Lady would place upon the heads of her children an indestructible crown of spiritual graces. So it's not surprising that the, the most popular salutation was the one taken directly from the gospel, from the episodes of the Annunciation and the Visitation, which we all know. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. That's Luke one twenty eight, And blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, is Luke one forty two. These two salutations formed the first part of the Ave Maria and were known as the angelic salutations. Now, those two verses were joined together around the 11th century, but the second half of the Ave Maria was only coined in the 17th century. The second part of the Ave Maria, so in, in the Middle Ages, was not in general use. Uh, the famous Dominican Thomas Aquinas only mentions the first part in his catechetical instructions, for example, only the angelical salutation. Now, that Mary is the mother of God was solemnly defined by the Council of Ephesus, but Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, wasn't added to the Hail Mary until the Protestant reformers started denying her divine maternity and the communion of saints both of which are addressed in that addition to the prayer. But what about St. Dominic? I mean, you would search the literature of the 13th and 14th century in vain for a detailed account of the institution of the rosary by St. Dominic. But it's because that was not the literary genre of the time. Those medieval writers were far more anxious to edify their readers, which is, of course, the more, most important thing, rather than to write history. And the origins of the rosary are according to the Dominican fathers, covered as if by a mysterious shadow, because providence wanted it thus, with all due respect to the modern rationalists. They say it's a secret between the Virgin Mary and her servant Dominic, right, the, the exact exchange that uh, exchange between them. But it would be a great impiety, they say, and as well as a lack of common sense, which you know is the most important thing around here. It would be against reason, to use that mysterious shadow to deny St. Dominic the invention of this prayer the way the moderns do, like I talked about the authorship of the Gospels. Uh, it would be a great impiety because the institution of the Rosary by St. Dominic belongs to the most assured tradition. Small-t tradition, yes, but the tradition of the Dominican order and also the Roman Church in, in her official liturgy. And that's the major argument that it would be a lack of, of, of common sense and, and good reason because the documents of the 13th and 14th centuries offer an indication of this truth so numerous and so evident that they suffice to situate the institution of the rosary in a specific time, neither before nor after St. Dominic. And those are the two points that they, they develop in this article about which modern criticism is completely silent. Right? They don't mention uh, uh, the, the tradition or even the inclusion in the liturgy as part of their uh, argument. So let's begin with the tradition of the Roman Church. Uh, th there's the, uh, uh, the bull of St. Pius V, 
Consuverent Romani Pontifices, from 1569, in which he clearly writes that St. Dominic invented and then propagated the entire uh, to the entire Roman Church a mode of prayer called the Rosary, or the Psalter of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which consists in honoring the Blessed Virgin by the recitation of 150 Ave Marias, in conformity with the number of David's Psalms, adding to each decade of Aves the Lord's Prayer and the meditation of the mysteries of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there it is in black and white. Uh, in the bull Monat, Monat Apostolus from 1573, which instituted the solemnity of the Holy Rosary, Pope Gregory XIII recalls that St. Dominic, in order to deflect God's wrath and obtain the health of the Blessed Virgin, instituted this practice so pious that it is called the Rosary, or Mary's Psalter. In 1724, Contradictors having called into question the attribution of the rosary to St. Dominic. Okay, so in other words, to answer this specific question, Benedict XIII asked the Congregation for Rights to study the question. And the promoter of the faith, Prospero Lambertini, the future Benedict XIV, established himself on the firm ground of Roman tradition that there, there was no objection to make. So on March 26, 1726, Benedict XIII made obligatory the lessons of the Roman breviary for the matins of the Feast of October the 7th, teaching that Mary recommended to St. Dominic the preaching of the rosary to the people, giving him to understand that this prayer would be an exceptionally efficacious succor against heresies and vices. And those lessons are still part of the traditional Roman breviary today. Now, Benedict XIV, having learned of objections to the attribution of the rosary to St. Dominic, declared that the Roman tradition was founded on the most solid bases uh, that he responded to his adversaries thus. He said, you ask us if St. Dominic instituted the rosary. You declare that you are perplexed and full of doubts about this matter. But then what do you make of so many oracles of the sovereign pontiffs, of Leo X, of Pius V, of Gregory the Thirteenth, of Sixtus the Fifth, of Clement the Eighth, of Alexander the Seventh, of Innocent the Eleventh, of Clement the Eleventh, of Innocent the Thirteenth, of Benedict the Thirteenth, and of still others, all unanimous in attributing to Saint Dominic the institution of the Rosary. And if he had lived later, we would have been able to add the wonderful encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth. And I just I want to share with you a story about uh, St. King Louis the Ninth. St. Louis. Every evening, he would kneel 50 times, each time uh, rising and then re-kneeling 50 times in a row, and each time he knelt, he would recite the Ave Maria. So that, that was his daily chaplet to the Blessed Virgin. Didn't only pray the prayers, but knelt for each and every one of them. And the usage of the rosary beads invaded every rank of the society at that time. It's the 13th century. In Paris, uh, the Dominican fathers tell us that there were no fewer than three companies manufacturing rosaries. And another interesting, and I would say revealing fact, concerns Rome de Livia, who was a disciple of St. Dominic, a direct disciple. Right, so not of his writings, but of the man. 
It says, in ancient chronicles, we read that the blessed Rome, apparently a very lettered clerk, because he was successfully the prior of the convent of Lyon, then provincial of Provence, and finally the prior of Bourges, died while squeezing tightly in his hands the knotted cord on which he counted his Ave Marias, meditating and instructing the friars in this devotion to the Holy Virgin. The fact shows that from the beginning, the very first preachers proved to be very zealous in spreading the devotion of St. Dominic to the Rosary. The Dominicans, dispersed to the four corners of Christendom, would go on to have a decisive influence in the expansion of the Rosary and its implementation in every class of society. The Reverend Father Mortier, a, a Dominican historian and a historian of the order, he wrote this. He said, the order founded by St. Dominic developed from its beginning in an extraordinary way the practical devotion to the Ave Maria. <clears throat> this, he says, is incontestable. But the rosary was not a new and beautiful custom honoring Our Lady by the repetition of the angelic salutation. From St. Dominic's time, the rosary appeared as a weapon to use against the church's enemies. An historical document shows St. Dominic victoriously employing this prayer in a famous battle against the heretics. So centuries before the Battle of Lepanto was the first victory of the rosary gained at Muret near Toulouse on the 12th of September, 1213. 800 Catholic knights summoned by Pope Innocent III found themselves confronted by roughly 34,000 enemy troops. The Cathars had been reinforced by troops from Spain. And Dominic, with the clergy and the people, entered the church at Muret, and he had them pray one rosary after another. Five months after the event, a notary of the Languedoc wrote, Dominicus affere dumincipit tarn humilis, Dominicus coronas confene, statem aperet agilis. So what he's saying is that talking about the humility of St. Dominic, who doesn't hesitate to pray this humble prayer and his agility at completing one rosary after the other. And the victory of the Catholic Knights, led by Samuel de Montfort, was brilliant and miraculous. 800 victorious over 30,000. And that's no nonsense. All right, we're going to have more on St. Dominic and the Rosary next week, as well as whatever may happen and the uh, the upcoming uh, gospel for the next Sunday and everything else that, uh, you know, whatever might transpire between now and then. And uh, in the meantime, I just want to encourage you to visit vmpr.org. See, we've got uh, conferences coming up. There's lots going on. There's an opportunity to donate just by hitting one button, one click donation. And until uh, next time, may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>